I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. I'll just read this to And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, <coughs> in many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having done gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophecy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exalts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Last verse of this, verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honour in honor giving preference to one another. In our list here, we have seven gifts that are listed. Prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and showing mercy. Those are the gifts as we see them in verses 6 through 8. In those verses, what I want to do for a moment is we're going to develop each of these. Um, God willing, next week then we will attack the ones in 1 Corinthians, which again, we'll actually we'll, we'll get there and it'll be kind of fun because we have a unique batch, by the way, for what it's worth. Eight gifts listed, but one of them will be shared and that's the one of prophecy, the first one we address here. Now, when I start to look at these, please understand this. When I started to study scripture, I've got I to start there. I didn't start to study scripture because I thought I would ever teach it. I studied scripture because I wanted to know Jesus. I wanted to know the one who saved me. I got saved at 19. I was a full-fledged, horrible, advanced sinner. I probably would have said I had a doctorate in sinning. But I went to a music festival, a Christian music festival of all things. And there, somebody laid out the truth of the gospel, and I said yes. And then I lived very much like I did before. The people who had taken me were, I, I would probably dare say, flirt to convert people, uh, if that makes any sense. And uh, kind of, I kind of looked and went, are you, are you, you, that's why you brought me this thing? And uh, I was gone. And for the next three years, I lived very much like I did before until I was in Colorado at the time. I just, I'd left Chicago and moved to Colorado with a modeling firm. And uh, I was sleeping in this tiny little shack of a place, 700 square feet. There were 11 of us living. We just looked like a bomb went off every night. We just all slept on the floor, uh, all from the same modeling firm. And I just cried out to God. I'm like, God, I don't even know who you are. I know you saved me, but if you're willing to tell me who you are, I'll give you every bit of who I am. And God said, well, then go to California. And I went, come again? I mean, it seemed like the strangest request. I mean, I thought it would be something, you know, 
climb this mountain, sit in this cave, sit alone for don't talk forever. And so I got in a car ultimately and I drove west. Now the nice thing about California is if you drive due west and you hit water, you're there. Pretty safe because you can't drive any farther. Uh, and it was there that someone said, hey, that, that book you carry, why don't you try reading it? And as dumb as it sounds, it was the most revelationary thing for me. Because though I had been to church every Sunday, matter of fact, I had actually led worship before I was a Christian. Don't recommend that at all. Uh, and I was on a first-name basis with every pastor because of that. I had never seen a Bible open. In my three and a half years or whatever of being a Christian, I had never seen a Bible open. So I opened up the Bible for the first time and I started in Genesis. I had no doctrinal background. I had no tapes or commentaries or anything like that to read. I just basically was like, I don't know right from wrong. I actually knew that much. I would gotten one sermon from my dad. And that was, if I got anyone pregnant, I didn't have to marry them. That was my, you know, yeah, well, thanks, Dad. Yes. And you can imagine, that was a bit confessionary, if that makes sense. Uh, and so I knew I didn't know right from wrong. So I opened up the Bible with this idea, God, I want to know who you are. And it's just your Bible and a pad of paper. And I was just going to write down, if I wasn't doing something that I was supposed to, I was going to write it down. If I was doing something I wasn't supposed to, I'd write that down. And then I'd go for a walk. I realized if you just write all that down, you get overwhelmed. So I'd write something down, and then I'd go for a walk. And I'd be like, you need to change me. I can't change me on this. You need to change me. And then I just started sharing. I started sharing with um, what I was learning. And all of the people around me that I was working with, I was just to make it even better, I was bartending, uh, Again, I was raised in that environment, not to excuse it. Uh, everyone started giving their life to Jesus. And then they all sat down and went, well, you know, we were talking. Does that make you nervous when a bunch of your friends were like, by the way, we were talking about you without you there. And uh, they said, this stuff that you're learning, maybe we could just come together on Thursdays and just hear what you're teaching. So the first Bible study was accidental. I was I made it up to Job, and I was like, well, then we're going to go through Job. Imagine, my first book I ever taught to was Job. And I was like, dude, this guy's friends are whack. You know, I mean, it was just, but it was such a gentle and genuine time of just, are we doing this? Are we not doing this? And it was through all of that, God did a whole bunch of miracles, but that's how it started. And so the reason I say that is, when I look at things like this, there is so much foliage to cut through to get to what it just says that we read into all of this stuff because of our cultures and because of what, you know our backgrounds and well clearly it must be this got to be a guy in a robe because every person I've ever seen call themselves a prophet clearly wears a robe you know and I'm like yeah well what is scripture saying so I always try to take a look and say what do I see in scripture from Jesus' example and then what do I see in the book of Acts from ordinary people's example, you know, where it's like God, the <laughs> Son of God, fully God, fully man, to God living in a man. Uh, and that's us. And because if I see it exampled, well, then it helps me to kind of go, well, maybe that's kind of how it works to some degree. 
Because I don't think God's just going to leave us just trying to figure this out on our own by leaving a bunch of kooky men and women together just to sort of develop it on their own because we get things like Disney and we call it love. So, so here's where it starts. Our first one is the word prophecy. You probably see that there. Now let me ask you, and I'm, gonna, and I'm asking for you to, I'm picking your brains here. Can you think of any time in the books of the Gospels and or the book of Acts where you see prophecy, you, someone prophesying? Okay. In such a case where he's talking about the end times. Yeah. Okay. Mary? Ooh. Mm. Yes, as a matter of fact. Yeah. What we call the Magnificat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in him. I guess to some degree it's the announcements of the angels. Mm-hmm. Sure. About mm-hmm. John the Baptist's birth, Jesus' birth. Mm-hmm. John the Baptist himself. Mm-hmm. In what way? <coughs> Prophesying that he like that Jesus was coming, that yeah. That he was it's interesting because I'm able to extrapolate from everything you've said so far the same thing. Keep going. What else do you see? You've got Agabus in Acts. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he's the show and tell prophet. He twi- shows up twice. Yeah. And he takes Paul. Imagine a stranger comes up to you, takes your belt off of your mm-hmm. trousers, hog ties himself in front of you. And then says, oh, yeah, this is going to happen to you. <laughs> and and my first thought is, can I have my belt? <laughs> but even before that, he showed up once before that, and it says he showed that there was going to be a great famine. And I'm like, how does someone show there's going to be? It's like, there's charades for you right there. Right? Anyways. <laughs> so you got a flannel graph, you got sock puppets, or sandal puppets, I guess. Um, okay. And you've got the whole book of Revelation? whole book of Revelation from which John sees. You know what's interesting is you limited prophecy. Yeah, to, to future stuff. Where and that's the natural place we go. Strictly speaking, to help the word of God. As a matter of fact, when you said John the Baptist, I was actually quite hopeful. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. No, but you were, you were still fair. Because when John the Baptist said, repent, he was prophesying. Mm. We get this idea, mm. and again, this is part of stripping away our culture, that prophecy must actually be telling the future. In other words, it's kind of like Christian fortune telling. Yeah. But the problem is, is that when Paul speaks about it, when we see in First Corinthians chapter 14, when he talks about, hey, seek all spiritual gifts. I mean, you, want to, you guys obviously are way into the tongues thing, but... You should actually seek to prophesy. He goes, because if somebody walks into a church and everybody's just speaking in different languages, they're going to think this place is meh. He goes, but if they walk in and they hear a prophecy and the secret of a person's heart is laid bare, they'll actually turn to the Lord from it. Interesting, that's not telling the future there. Right. The vast, vast majority of prophecy is actually not foretelling the future. It's just foretelling the Word of God. And do you know the one primary message of the Old Testament as far as prophets are? Our prophet, their primary message? I'll give you a hint. Yes, excellent. You redeemed the whole thing. Uh, John the Baptist would line that up. And that is repent. Now, 
According to Jesus, who is the greatest prophet? Jonathan. Excellent. And you know what's interesting? He says, if you are actually in the kingdom of God, you're greater than the greatest prophet. Have you ever thought that too? Why? Well, that's all that matters, really, isn't it? That we're in the kingdom of God. Everything else is is going to happen in the future, and whatever else, that's not good. John can, we might not make it. Yeah, John could lead you to the beginning of the back of the back of Jesus' sandals, but we can lead you to the other side of the cross. Mm-hmm. John's message, in the simplest sense, could lead you to the to the Jordan, but it couldn't lead you in. That's why, if you know the story of a man named Apollos in the book of Acts, he was gifted, and he was, he was, in the simplest sense, he was an eloquent speaker. That's what the scripture says. But he only knew the baptism of John. He could dazzlingly lead you to repentance. It's as far as you can get. In other words, here's all the things wrong with you. You should stop them. But that's not the gospel. He could tell you you were guilty for your wrongdoing. But the gospel's bad news, good news. Remember, the cross is half the story. The cross is the part where everything is laid down. The empty tomb is where there's the, other, there's the trade. And what happens is the world sees the, world sees the cross part. And because that's the part... We often, you know, we stop that. Jesus died for you. What it tells you is, oh, and I have to stop doing drugs and sleeping with my girlfriend, and I have to stop doing all the things I think are fun, but they don't see a trade. And I often say, God's not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. There's the beauty. I have never given up anything to him that he's not given me better. So let me lay out a few scriptures for you. For those, by the way, Luke 176, it is told that John the Baptist will be called the prophet of the Most High, for what's worth. And yet Jesus in Matthew 11.11 says you're greater. Because he uses the term so that he makes it clear. All, all those born of women. Well, that should be, I mean, that includes testy babies and all that. But, uh, but we are born of more than that. We are born of the Spirit. But listen to a couple of verses here that I want to kind of lay out for you. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. We need to lay out some ground rules. No prophecy of Scripture. Notice, by the way, he doesn't just say no prophecy. But no prophecy of Scripture ever came by private interpretation. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. Prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word moved there is the word fenecho or fenarejo. And the word means to be carried. The Holy Spirit carried people as they spoke. In other words, it isn't like some guy has this private interpretation of Scripture. And this is always something I try to be a little weary of. Hey, when you're young in Scripture, you want to come up with something no one else has ever come up with. But if you come up with something no one else has, there's always a red flag in that already. And I have a friend, he calls himself epic preacher and he preaches like Batman dude I mean it's like he's like epic preacher he comes up with the strangest things 
And he's like, it's not a salvation issue, so I have a little, you know, leeway. But I'm like, dude, first of all, he's like, well, I'm reaching the culture, and it's got to be three minutes. It's got to be, he's got this dramatic music in the background. I mean, it's just, anyways. But it's like, he's got to find the thing no one else has found, you know. And ultimately, that's going to lead you to the Illuminati, and it's going to lead you to, you know, all the things mm-hmm. that, you know. And, right. and of course, that's this. I'm like, okay, well, you know, good on you. All right, here's another thing, and I really want to point this out. There's a difference between the gift of prophecy and calling yourself a prophet. Deuteronomy 13 is one of my favorite places for that. Deuteronomy 13 makes this clear. And again, don't just believe me. If a person calls himself a prophet, they have to be 100% right, 100% of the time, or you stone them. Mm. And there's always that joke, why are there so many false prophets today? Because we stopped stoning them. Uh, now, that wouldn't leave me very hesitant to call myself a prophet. Mm-hmm. Not but when somebody from Kansas City says, today's prophets are only right 70% of the time, I get a little nervous of that. Because a prophet carries with him a responsibility, but also authority. Now, let me ask you, for the most part in the Old Testament, who were the prophets sent to? It's on God's people. Predominantly, prophets are sent to God's people to call them back to Him. Is there any example beyond that? Jonah. Excellent. Jonah. Jonah to Assyria. And wow, it couldn't be worse, could it? I'll tell you, and here's the best part. The bottom of the barrel. Biggest revival in all of the Old Testament, and the guy's actually moaning about it. Of course he is. Of course he is. I would too. Yeah, he's just upset. Yeah, he is upset. Well, of course he is. Ten tribes have been lost you know? to, to that uh, to the As a matter of fact, you get yeah, you get you get various other ones where there's sort of like it's part of the salad. Yeah. But in Jonah's case, by the way, he was called a prophet before he was sent to Nineveh. So more than likely, he was prophesying to God's people before he was sent on this. And he's like, it was hard enough for them, but you're going to send me to. These people no. skin people alive and they rip babies out of pregnant women and kill them no. in front of them before they die. I mean, they were horribly wicked. Well, they, they, they ruined Israel for ten tribes, didn't they? Well, you know, but you know, if you read the end of Second Kings, you'll find out that God's like, he's still in control. That God's like, all you had to do was turn to me and this wouldn't happen. Now, hear this one. One of my favorite texts on prophecy. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. And I always see this is a great place to test prophecy. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Those are the three things I look for when a person seeks to prophesy. Edification, exhortation, and comfort. Those are really good things to check on. Excellent. As a matter of fact, we're going to develop that here in a moment. Are we coming back to the thing about prophets having to be 100% right? Because I've heard that before. Um, like, if someone claims to prophesy, they're claiming to have the same authority as the Word of God. Well, I would say, yeah, that's, that's good. I'd say there's a difference between the gift of prophecy and someone who calls himself a prophet. Okay. Because the Bible tells us to test all prophecies, and which I think is a really good thing. But here's the thing. If you're simply seeking to prophesy and you know that the person's going to test you, 
then they won't be grabbing stones. Mm-hmm. And it actually should leave you in a place where you should be willing to prophesy. Because you don't have the responsibility of, like, someone... Like, it's the other person's responsibility to test what... Right. Mm-hmm. And that's your responsibility, really, isn't it? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you're trying to get it right, and they're yeah. trying to make sure you're well Here's the cool yeah. thing. If that be the case, imagine what it would be like for us if you so felt moved by the Lord to risk it. Mm-hmm. Now, next week, God willing, we're going to talk about word of knowledge and word of wisdom. And the reason I say that is a word of knowledge is, again, you will be, chances are, you'll be mixing a cocktail, I hate to use that word, of a lot of these different things when you're ministering to somebody. But when God gives you a word of knowledge, it's information you couldn't possibly have unless it were divinely given to you. Mm-hmm. And that's not prophecy. Those are two different things. Because actually in 1 Corinthians, he uses prophecy and word of knowledge in the same list. They can't be the same thing, or why would he use them both? But I can tell you this. We have something that even the Old Testament saints didn't have, and that is the word of God. There was one time where I can say, thus says the Lord, and that's any time I open up scripture and it says it. Now, my interpretation on that, I will not put to the same weight for good reason. But listen to this verse. And it's from Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. One of my favorite verses in it. It says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Oh, I love that verse. I would expect prophecy to lead me to Jesus. Because the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit is to lead me to Jesus. That was Revelation 19.10. So consider this. I taught at two Christian schools. I was the fine arts director for them. And we occasionally have these guys come in that were prophets. And of course, the big joke is, well, traditionally we're non-profit. But, uh, <laughs> but it also says, do not despise prophecies. Yes. So we can't be in the place where it's like, I feel like I have a prophecy. And you're like, shut up. Um, you can't do that either. But the guy came up, and, and, and again, we were a, a high school. That's a secondary school for kids ages 14 to 18. And this guy kind of stood up there, and he pointed at every cute girl in our school and gave them prophecies. That was, that was the only people he had prophecies for. And I was like, you're going to be a dancer, and you're going to be a this. And, and I'm like, okay, where's the edification, where's the exhortation and comfort in what you're saying? Because what I'm hearing in this is, hey, you're catching my eye. We need to talk about it. And, and again, that doesn't mean he couldn't be, or he couldn't be misusing the gift God's giving him. But I was missing the whole point of pointing me to Jesus. That's the whole point of everyone. Now here is a danger in that. In the Old Testament, prophecy was considered proof that the Holy Spirit had come upon someone. For instance, a classic example was Saul. Now hear me on this, because I have to develop things fairly quickly so that I don't keep you here all day, and I'm selfish, I would. There are three basic interactions of the Holy Spirit to human beings. The first is that the Holy Spirit dwells with a human being. That's from, by the way, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The second is that the Holy Spirit dwells in a believer. He dwells with every human being. With, para, besides. In, en inside the second or the third I'm sorry from Acts 1.8 is the Holy Spirit dwells upon now according to scripture 
You cannot have this Holy Spirit dwell in you until you receive Jesus Christ. But before you knew Jesus, the Holy Spirit was dwelling beside you, pushing you to the cross. And he's doing that with every human being. And that's why some people have a real problem with you when you're actually walking in spirit like you should be. You don't even have to say a word to irritate them. Let's just be honest. I worked at a Christian bookstore, and the boss, I don't know how many of you have ever seen this movie, and I'm not endorsing it, but she looked just like Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and she acted just like her. She was so miserable, but this was a Christian bookstore. And I was like, I was like Tigger, you know? And I was just like so excited about Jesus. Yeah, so yeah, right? And you're like, wow, you've changed so much. And, and I would just be so stoked about Jesus. That hasn't changed. And finally, one day, she just blew up on me. She's like, you are so fake. And I'm like, and it came out of nowhere. So I was like, come again? She's like, you, I mean, you sit at your desk and the pencil falls off and you go, praise God. What's that? And I'm like, well, I've been sitting there. I need some exercise. I got up to get my pencil. Praise God. She's like, see what I mean? You're not... <laughs> and I'm like, could it just be that the Spirit of God is actually here and that's bothering you at this moment? <laughs> yeah, we got along real well. In a Christian bookshop. Oh, yeah. She's like, I've had it with you. It's all right. I'm like, okay. Here's the problem. <laughs> the devil is no creator. He is imitator. He doesn't have the power of creation. I mean, I'm going to say it in a very dangerous... Well, we're recording. Let me just say it this way. There are countries out there that normally don't come up with things that are original, but they are really good at imitating. They're de- and we could put it this way. They do knockoffs. And the enemy is about knockoffs. And the reason I say that is just because a person prophesies, for instance, with Saul's case. In Saul's case, by the way, of those three, specifically that of in or upon, which of those two would you expect in the Old Testament? Upon. Upon. Because, and again, he dwells with an unbeliever. According to Ephesians 1.13, the moment you receive Jesus, God places Holy Spirit inside of you as a seal guaranteeing your redemption, your inheritance. By the way, from that point on, the Holy Spirit starts changing you to make you different from the world, from the inside out, which means if you're still trying to look like the world, you are fighting the Holy Spirit inside of you. Have a nice day. So uh, that's what's happening for that. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it is to empower you for ministry so that you can do God's supernatural things supernaturally. Now, that's why when Jesus talks about asking for the Holy Spirit, because it, it talks about to continue to ask or to be being filled in the book of Ephesians. Be being means you keep on asking because you keep needing it to fill. And I think it was Spurgeon they asked, why do you have to keep being, built, being filled? And he says, because I leak. Uh, I love the idea. It's like, Lord, continue. You hear, you hear me pray, but it's like, fill me with you. Come upon me because I need you to do this, not me. In, in Saul's case, the king before David. God's Holy Spirit comes upon him to be king and then God fires him and he removes his Holy Spirit from him because he doesn't need to empower him anymore because he isn't called to that position anymore. It comes upon David to the rest of his life because David will be a king to his death. Does that make sense? Now here's the danger. Just because a person prophesies, there's a, there's a philosophical fallacy called modus tollens. 
And the idea is that if all A equals B does not mean all B equals A. The converse is not necessarily right. I could say all the girls in this room, you know, have shoe sizes less than size 12. I think that's fair to say, and I haven't looked, but that's just my guess because none of you are that large. But that doesn't mean that all people who have shoe sizes less than 12 are women. And if you were to say that when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, they were to prophesy in the Old Testament, it does not mean just because a person prophesies, it means the Holy Spirit's upon them. Classic example of that in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18, when Eliyahu, Elijah, is standing against the prophets of Baal. And he's mocking them, and he's trash-talking them. But it says they, that's the prophets of Baal, prophesied until the evening sacrifice. Which just tells me something. Just because someone's prophesying does not mean... Especially when you were talking about this whole, look at how we naturally went to telling the truth, or telling the future. Mm-hmm. And then what about the tarot reader? And what about the person sets up their little yeah. tent at the... Are they doing that? Well, that's just an interesting thought. Nonetheless, this is what I expect from a prophet. I expect two specific things. One is, I expect them to speak edification, exhortation, and comfort. And I expect them to testify of Jesus. And if, it's, and if they're not going to do that, let's face it, the question is, do we need prophets today to call God's people to repentance? Oh, bring them. But let's be honest, if a prophet were to walk around England or London, do you really think he wouldn't be arrested today? Even if he just showed up at the churches? But do we need him? Absolutely. Well, how's that for a start? Now, what if we were to ask, God, give me the gift of prophecy. But again, let me remind you, you are never to be the end. You're to be the conduit. So, is prophecy essentially just pre- or not not necessarily preaching, but like just you know, is there anything more special to prophecy than just like talking to someone about Jesus? Ooh, because we can talk about evangelism later. But let me just say four words. Thus says the Lord. That's what a prophet says with authority. Okay. In these, it says, in times past, God in various ways spoke in times past through the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us through his Son, whom we ordained heir over all things. The most definitive statement, Hebrews 1 and 2, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is Jesus Christ. Now, in the sense of calling God's people to repentance, I would say, I would call that prophetic. Okay. If that makes sense. Now, I can tell you from the series of songwriters, having been uh, employed for quite a bit of time in the Christian music business, my favorite Christian artists will always be those who, who I could comfortably say are advocating <laughs> spiritual gifts. And there were a couple people who, by the way, musically, I wasn't very fond of. But spiritually, I would still listen and say, one guy sounded like you were literally squeezing a pig. I mean, honestly, he had this kind of voice. Uh, I won't say who it is, because now that's terrible as a description. But he was so prophetic. Let me tell you another person who was prophetic. Keith Green. He was before my time, by the way. But if you actually listen to a lot of what he spoke on, he was very, he was calling God's people to a seriousness with God. 
And you know what? He was extremely effective in that. Now he got his own. <laughs> Tell us another story, Grandpa. <laughs> but anyway, you were saying exalt, and what does that look like? Comfort. And, and comfort oh yeah, comfort we'll talk about exhortation in a moment because it's one of the spiritual gifts. And uh, yeah, but in the simplest sense, he's going to challenge you. He's going to encourage you. He's going to comfort you. That's the simplest of it. Very similar, by the way, to what Paul says a father does in First Thessalonians. All right. And of course, we see things like Acts 13, where it says, in the church in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Clearly, there was prophecy taking place there. And he's going to make mention of that in chapter 14. So I would say, when you listen to a teacher, like even here, and there will be developing of scripture like this, and the moment it moves to, now what are we going to do about it? There's going to be a prophetic tinge to that. Does that make sense? The moment it's like, a, we need to change. What are we going to do to change? Mm. How do we change? Chances are there's a prophetic ring to that. Mm. And I'll be honest. Right now I'm just planting seeds on all of these. Mm. Because again, if you just fall in love with the Lord and enjoy Him, you'll find yourself doing these things and you'll be able to go, ooh, dude, that was a bit prophetic. Mm. And it won't just be like, hey, this is going to happen to you. Mm. But hey... Mm. You're like reaching into a person's heart and challenging them to change. So sorry if I'm like No, Lois, please. But you're sorting through it. I like if someone had come in somewhere and been like, It's gonna happen, you're gonna like immediately in the back of my head I would have just been like mm, like I don't believe them. But that's probably from a quite a proud point of view. But like is there still prophecy like that today? Why not? Remember this. That when a person says something like that, it's usually to back up a message. Okay. For instance, Jeroboam, the one guy whose sin is listed specifically more than anyone else's sin in Scripture, mm-hmm. the first king of the northern area of Israel. You need to repent. You've really blown it with God, and you've made these false uh, idols these cows in Bethel and up until Dan. And he goes, God is going to completely wipe this out. As a matter of fact, proof of that is, in a moment, that altar is going to split open and ashes are going to fall out of this thing. He goes, but you need to repent. The message was, you need to repent. And here's this foretelling to prove it. So the king holds out his hand, like, like oh, arrest him, and then his hand kind of cripples up. And he's like, oh, please, can you fix my hand? And, uh, and then the whole thing spills open. And again, there was a message for which the fourth telling backed up. If it's just a dog and pony show, hey, this is going to happen and the lottery numbers for tomorrow are. What in the world does God want with that? Okay. But again, we're, and here's the danger. And we'll always, let's talk balance. Let's have an agreement at this table that there should be balance in this. Don't despise prophecies, but test them. Mm-hmm. Don't just, oh, I really need something supernatural, so you're just going to cling to anything. Mm-hmm. My daughter was pulled into that nonsense mm-hmm. by a guy that's like, God just told me we're going to be married. Mm-hmm. She's like, what? Mm-hmm. And she, I mean, imagine this poor girl I has heard for 20 years. Don't just believe me. How much more the kook is sitting in a tent? Anyways, so <clears throat> she looks like Barbie, so I understand his perspective. And the danger <laughs> is there's wishful thinking that we can easily think is prophecy. Mm-hmm. You know? And we can, oh yeah, that's kind of the red car syndrome. We just really want it to happen, so there must be an inkling. But not just to write it off. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't despise it either. But test it. Here's the cool part, ready? The word for test. Dokimazete. I love that word. Does that mean same, is it? Uh, it's it's a money wear. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, dokimazete means to seem, right? I now, the, a dokimaz, by the way, was a specific person at a market. They were traditionally the person often you encountered first. And the idea was, is that remember, we had different kinds of currency all over the place, but traditionally the currency was actually strangely enough worth the metal that it was actually contained. Huh. Right. right. Oh. Yes. oh, those days. <laughs> real money. Before my days. Real money. Yeah, real money versus this paper, or now plastic, paper or plastic? Uh, you know, yeah. let's just all agree this is worth five pounds and we're all going to be good as long as we all agree. Bitcoin stuff. It's kind of like Monopoly. But, I mean, so imagine, so here's the deal. So we take this coin, and, and again, there was a, originally coins had a top image only. But then that became a problem because you could shave off the bottom. So what did we do? We put an image on both sides so you couldn't shave off. Because again, if you could kind of shave off the precious metal, you were making that thing worth less. So what did we do? How do we, how do we continue to jip someone if we can't shave off the top or the bottom? We should excellent. We should off the sides. So now all of a sudden, this big coin is a smaller coin. But it's oh okay. So how do I know that it's worth it? Well, you would take a person that had tried and trusted weight. So they had weights that they trusted that they knew were going to be immovable, and they took that and they put it on one side of the scale, and they put that on the other. And if it weighed out, then it was proper, and that person was a document. Now, I love that. To this day, by the way, when you come in with a whole lot of money. Even if somebody's going to count it, they weigh it, don't they? Even the plastic. They'll put that out and then it kind of goes through. But they put it because they want to make sure it should weigh a certain amount. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I say that is, is the idea of somebody testing something is that you have to have a weight that you know is immovable and unchangeable and trustworthy. So what's this? Excellent. Yes, the Word of God. Mm -hmm. And if I can take that other statement over here, and if it doesn't balance out, then this is not proper currency. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's what we're to do with every prophecy. God is never going to throw out a prophecy mm -hmm. that's going to be opposite of his scriptures. Mm -hmm. And there are, I'm telling you. Oh boy, I've heard them. Arizona, there was a group from Texas. Oh, Texas. Uh, I'm not from Texas, so I can joke about that. Um, but they were like, they were going to be, they were going to be the pure, separate people for Jesus. And they all got in a van and smoked pot, because that, of course, is going to purify you. And so they're all in this van, and somewhere in all of this, they looked at each other. I kid you not, because I've read the police report, the, the quote-unquote one of the two leaders says, the problem is there are demons in our clothing. So you can imagine what happened. Out the window went the clothes, and the police pulled them over. They opened up the van door, and of course this waft of pot smoke comes out, and there's everybody naked. And the worst part is, that, pardon me for saying, it wouldn't have been so bad if they were Mormon, but they were calling themselves Christians. Mm -hmm. So of course the person's like, oh, no, how, do you, how do you write that report? Mm -hmm. Christians, smoke a pot, naked. Uh, you know. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, somewhere, don't you think someone's like, hmm. Well, here's the problem. If you don't know these weights, mm. then you have nothing to weigh it against. A few months ago, I was paying in a church collection in the bank. And the guy in front of me, I was paying in about five grand to a nice. You were? No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> the guy in front of me 
Oh, wow. I knew them that well. Wow. wow. I was so impressed. Because they knew the real ones really well. Yes. So they knew the false ones. Yes, that's right. You knew, they, they trained them to know the real. They, they handled yeah. so much real that the fear of the false mm. is obvious. Wow. Did he, yeah. Yeah. So normally it's at the bottom of the pile when I get the dodgy people coming in to Argos. Hmm. I've had one, of, well, I've only had one, but it was at the bottom of the pile. Start there. Yeah. <laughs> the Department of Treasury. It's very rare. I have a friendly word for the Department of Treasury in America. And his first three weeks, he sat in a vault with just true money. Yeah. And he had to write everything he could about that true money. Oh, wow. He had to do a report on it. And the whole idea of it, I mean, he had to he'd, he'd put it in certain chemicals, and he would hold it up to the light, and he would try to, he, I mean, he was like, and he was allowed, you know, everything to weigh it, you know, all these things. And the idea of it was, is that they didn't give him, any, and I, I take this very seriously, they didn't give him any counterfeits. They didn't give him, and they didn't give him this big report on here are all the counterfeits you need to look mm. for. Because let's just be honest, once you figured out those, they're going to be new counterfeits. Mm. Yes, cool. But what they made sure of first was that this guy knew, and he boy did he. He could he could walk you through so many different things from the ink to the weight to the flexibility. It was amazing because he got to know this really well. Mm. And I've watched churches, and I'm not trying to diss churches, but where it's like people don't know the word that well. They spend an awful lot of time on every other religion. And so it's like, and I remember because there was at the school, one of the schools I taught at, they did this for a group of kids that were 13. Mm -hmm. And they were like, I forgot what the truth is because I've been sold about so many of the other things. And again, I'm not saying that you Mm -hmm. can't let people know, but they better know the truth first. Mm -hmm. So that it's like, okay, here are some counterfeits, but let's be honest, you can't be comprehensive on all the counterfeits because there'll always be a new one coming out. Now, we need to get to a few others here, but at least I want to know, obviously this is kind of our big one, because prophecies, you know, so, you know, let's be honest, do we need prophets today? Oh, gosh, yes. Do we need people to stand up, and let me, let me be honest, do I need a prophet? Someone to stand up to me at, at times and be able to say, hey, you're not lining up with, with Scripture. Well, I'm not just talking about teaching. I'm talking about your lifestyle. I actually need that. I actually, the guys I walk with, you know fairly well now, are getting to know. They know where I've come from, and they know the telltale signs of what it would look like for me to step back. Even a step back versus the horrible life I lived before. And I'm like, I need you to nail me this point when it's just an attitude before it becomes anything worse. I mean, because I need that. Let's face it, when you're walking in the Spirit, and I'm not trying to be as, you know, so esoteric, but if you're walking in the Spirit, God's still small voice is, is, resounds like thunder. But when you're walking in the flesh, you're living on the flesh plane, if you will, and God has to send somebody on the flesh plane to meet you because it's the only place you're looking and listening. Praise God. Isn't it cool that He does that? Mm-hmm. And when you think about that, like how many times did God send a prophet to Ahab, who was one of the most wicked kings, he's the seventh king, and he was like, oh man. And it's like, I'm going to do this so that you know that I'm the Lord. And he's like, okay, now that we've beat them up on the hill, now they're going to try to win in the plane. God says, I'm going to beat them there. You know why? So that you know I'm the Lord. Because you, st- I mean, I mean, that Mount Carmel thing, that wasn't enough. Well, you get mm-hmm. it. Okay, let's, um, let's roll through a few more of these. Is that all right? Okay. All right, ministry. Diakonia. By the way, we get a word from it. The word is deacon. Mm-hmm. And diakos means, in the simplest sense, to run an errand. I love that. When we talk about, oh, I have the gift of ministry, there's always the joke, you give a guy a badge and he calls himself a sheriff. You know, oh, I'm Deacon Bob. 
Well, honey, honey, that should mean that you're an errand runner. So go get a donut. <laughs> you know, the moment you're like, I am too good as a deacon to run an errand. That's the that's like kind of like a waiter saying, I'm too good to wait on that table. Wait a minute, you're a waiter. But now understand the gift of ministry is different than calling yourself a minister. Mm. That makes sense. But we are all called a ministry. We're all running. We have the ministry of reconciliation, and we are running errands for God all the time if we're willing to. So can you think of any time at all in the book of Acts, for instance, where somebody just did simple service? Uh, yeah, Stephen. Excellent. As a matter of fact, That's we call them the widow waiters because they were um, When the women were the Grecian widows, though they were Hebrew with a Grecian culture, were actually being neglected for the more traditional widows of the Hebrews, they said, well, we need to call... So they called people, and I do love this in Acts 7. They call the people together, the church, and they're like, who among you? That tells me something about the church. They knew each other. And they knew each other enough so that it wasn't like, we're going to put an ad out and see who actually meets the criteria. And then everything was about character, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, that we can really sit on this and it was like the people, like, we, imagine that, it was like, we got together and went, Stephen, that guy. Oh, yeah, clearly, Stephen, hands on. Philip, duh, Philip, Parmenas. Yeah, Nicander. Oh, my goodness, of course. And they all had great names, which is the greatness. Isn't that the beauty? Yeah. That every one of them has a great name. Why is that beautiful? Because it was the Grecian widows. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who better to actually, it would kind of be like saying, I'm just going to put it in really crude terms here. Like in Chicago, where it's like all the black widows are being neglected. And it's like Darnell Washington and Shaquan. It's like, I mean, you can only say that in the sense of, you kind of guess that it's probably like his sister's name probably isn't Amber, mm. you know, if that makes sense. I mean, it was like, then it was cool because they were, they were going to be tenderhearted to that. But it was genuinely ministry. Now, do you realize that is a spiritual gift? Now, what's interesting, the things we call spiritual gifts, what we may not find on the list, one of them is simply just trying to do things. In other words, this is one of those few places where someone actually may be more interested or more about things than people, per se. Although, in Stephen's case, it was definitely people. But food was the issue. He was waiting on widows. How about Paul in chapter 28 of Acts? After their shipwreck, he grabs a bundle of sticks and he's actually helping with the fire. That's an act of service. That's an act of ministry. Can I say this? There was a guy back in California who used to thank me that he got to clean the toilets at our church. I'm like, you know, how do you play that one off? You're like, oh yeah, well, of course, it's, you know, it's our pleasure to let you serve there. You know? Inside, I'm like, thank you. Oh, thank you. Because, to be honest, he was freaked out about people. He was very apprehensive about people. But he knew that whatever he did would end with blessing people. And because what he was able to do freed other people who had other ministries to do their things. I'll be honest. In the last two weeks, my load has been so much lighter because of this gal right here. Because she's just shown up. And, and see, like, that's the thing. When you're, when you're doing it in the spirit, it just doesn't seem like anything, does it? You're like, you know, okay, I'll, I'll put some tables. What else can I do? Let's, and it's like, there's just something really cool about stuff like that. Because if someone else gets to do that with you, you actually have the time to do the part you're called to do. You know, I have guys at the end of my night, because we have two studies, at the end of my night, that I've actually helped tear down and clean up the place so I can actually try to get home to my family. To read. I read the Bible to my family every night. Each one of my children 
and both of them, I both, and my wife, I read every night because I want to be a man of consistency because it's something they don't see elsewise. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it frees me to do that because they're like, we've got to handle it. I just love that. Don't underestimate those kind of ministries because they don't get enough, I mean, you know, let's face it, some of us, if you set up the, ch- if I set up the chairs, I'd be like, oh, this chair's pretty awesome set up. You know, there are other people, they would just set them up because they know people are going to sit in them. But it's a spiritual gift. How cool is that? Because, and the whole point is, any spiritual gift is something you're going to exercise that's going to impact eternity. Now, prophecy, we naturally assume that one's going to. But imagine this one is too. All right. Well, let me get a few more on that, okay? Teaching. Didasco. Obviously, the idea of didasco, or teaching, means to impart information that is supernatural information. And again, it's different from me teaching you maths or science, but communicating an eternal principle, well, that's another story altogether. And there's some people who are talented teachers who may not be spiritually gifted teachers. And they can teach you how to, put a, how to do a double Windsor tie. <laughs> but the moment that you actually give them a simple principle in Scripture, they fall apart. Mm-hmm. On the other side, there are those who can actually drool when they talk, but you get them in Scripture and something crazy and cool happens. I mean, there was a guy who was a gymnast, an Olympic gymnast, and he was very, very simple. He's a great gymnast, by the way. But man, when he opened up Scripture, he would just come up with these simple things and you're like, oh, that's perfect. All right. Last few on this. Exhortation. Remember that one? Yep. That's part of prophecy, isn't it? Yeah, it was part of that speaking exhortation. So, the term is parakaleho. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's called the comforter or counselor. Alon Perikleton, Acts 14.6. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, another helper is what he calls him. That's the term here. Para means beside, like paragraph. Yep. Kalejo, like to call. Called beside. So when would someone be called beside you? You tell me. When would someone be called beside you? When there's, a need. when there's a need. Sure. Hey. Uh, hello. <laughs> it's Hannah. <laughs> Speaking of an exhorter, she is. Now, let's face it, that can be in several situations. One could be in a situation where you're really, really bumming. You're having a really hard day and somebody's called beside. You know who might call that person beside you? You might. Mm-hmm. having a really rough day I could just really use a shoulder to lean on right now do you realize that's actually part of a spiritual gift but there's also another one if you've ever done anything that involved physical exercise where it was serious training you need somebody called beside you or you'll do less reps mm-hmm. and a PT physical trainer that's what be called beside you to help you reach a greater potential, if that makes sense. Challenge you to really, if you've ever run a marathon, <clears throat> and that last mile, you really want someone to run with. You know. And we talk about things like the holy banana. You're getting cramping and you're hitting that last mile and someone goes, hey, take this banana. And you're like, that's the best banana ever! <laughs> you've just gotten over the wall. The whole point of an exhortation is someone is called beside you. No, that will be to encourage 
But it'll also be to challenge you to put into practice what you know. And that seems to be the most common ways you see exhortation exercise. The idea of, hey, you already know this, but are you doing it? I'm coming alongside you. Let's do it together. God bless you, Anna. See you later, Annie. See you. Hi. Hi. Suppose it's somehow a Bayer tapestry or, or a similar thing. There was, a, there was the king with his sort of javelin or spear sort of encouraging his troops. He was sort of coming them up from behind. Yeah, sort of it's helping them to reach their potential. I always say you can either get in someone's boat and steer or get in someone's boat and row. But as a pastor... I want to be an exhorter. You would imagine, here's the scary thing, you would probably want in your pastor every one of these things. And I would say, I would want in every Christian every one of these things. But it's like, you want to, it's like to call beside someone and you know what? If you know where the Lord's calling you, how do I get in your boat and row? How do I help you get there? You know? Well, part of it is, hey, let's face it, when, you remember what it was like when you first said yes to Jesus? And how scary that was, because you kind of knew that meant you were going to have to say no to a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. And you're going to say no to all these things, but then you're going to turn around and like, what was going to be over here? And even having one friend, and I made all the difference in the world. When you're like, am I crazy? Because I want to do this now, like read the Bible. And there's a whole lot of other people that aren't going to be like that. Well, let me put it this way. And we're almost done because the, the other ones are fairly quick. But I, you know what I mean? I'm just excited about it. Um, remember when Mary was pregnant? I'm just going to lay it out that simple. God gave her a promise. He gifted her with the greatest gift that the entire world will ever get, Jesus Christ. But there was nobody in her community that was going to think it was a great gift while she was pregnant. Imagine what it would be like. You're walking around and as you start to grow, you could hear the whispering. And you can see those looks. And you know what that look means. Mm, when you're gone, we were talking about this. <laughs> oh, this is going to be... Oh, you are blog fodder. <laughs> Not even Joseph. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously God had to supernaturally intervene with Ultimate. Joseph. Yeah, yeah. Or else. Yeah. You know, here's the issue. I would imagine you would try to find the most slimming clothes you possibly could to hide the greatest gift this world could have until she went to some place with someone more pregnant with a promise than she was see her crazy old aunt who was way beyond bearing children now was pregnant three months beyond six months beyond her and the moment she went into that environment everything changed she was like why does the mother of my Lord come here? My baby's jumping for joy. And I, I, I think of that and I think how that brings Mary to praise. And then you realize, whether Elizabeth knew it or not, she was really called alongside Mary. It's such a fundamental part. Do you realize that's one of the fundamental parts of fellowship? You walk out there, you're pregnant with the promise of Jesus Christ. He's planted his spirit inside of you and the world will mock that and you want to kind of tuck it in. You want to tuck it in because you get tired of people laughing and pointing and calling you an idiot and all those things. You know that. And you're kind of like, oh. And then you get this weird dynamic inside because you loathe yourself for hiding the greatest gift. And yet, you're human, so you don't like to be laughed at. It's a weird place to be. And then it's like you want to go to church where it's like everybody's the same, where they're all going to try to act like the world. And it's like, wow, man, that's not going to help. But you get in a place where someone comes on and go, let's 
don't tell people about this, God, because, man, what you have is the greatest gift. And they're like, I seem to have forgotten as I walked around this thing. Well, that's what we need to be as exhorters. Who, which one of you thinks, yeah, I don't really need that gift? Or I don't really need somebody with that gift beside me. Oh, wouldn't it be great to... I mean, you know, if you know someone like this, they're probably one of your favorite people. For that reason... And when Paul says, stir up the gift to Timothy, or I challenge Archippus, man, get busy. He is exhorting them. He's like, look, at, I'm, calling, I'm coming beside you and going, let's get on this. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, in other words, it's kind of like the prophet kind of holds the whip and the exhorter holds the carrot. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, giving with liberality. Giving, by the way, you get the idea? Giving means giving. Do you know that's a spiritual gift? I mean, the idea of somebody actually just going, man, I have it, you can have it. Can you think of any time in Scripture where somebody gave like that in Acts? What's that? Ooh, okay. He just threw all of us, he's like, this is all I have, just have it. Remember, everyone was like, they they sold their stuff. Didn't they? They didn't have... Yeah, you know what? It seemed like almost everybody was exercising that to some degree. Definitely not Ananias and Sapphira, though. They had a bit of a problem, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I guess that's the difference between giving in the flesh, when you know you're holding back, and giving in the spirit, where it's like, it doesn't matter, I know it's going to go someplace good. Mm. The woman who just used all the anointment and the perfume. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, one of these days, I'll bring in an alabaster flask with that spikenard I have at my house. Mm. All right. Send you to a rapturous face. Because every time it brings tears in my eyes, because of how beautiful that. And when you smell how strong it is, mm-hmm. and you realize that a traditional guy, you know, didn't bathe every day like that. He bathed. He would have had to bathe before he entered the temple for the first time mm-hmm. because that was required as mikra. But then after that, he wouldn't. Have, Jesus more than likely would not have bathed between that and the cross, which means Jesus would smell. He would still be able to smell that on him as he was hanging, mm-hmm. as people were arguing over his clothes. He could smell that as they were, were pulling it. I think that was just the gift of the Father mm-hmm. in a moment like that. And the woman would never let down her hair in public because mm-hmm. it would be shameful. shameful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she would often only do it only for her husband. Right. Which is therefore really lavish, mm-hmm. extravagant love. And she, oh man, and she threw down her bride price. She was no longer on the market. When she, when she broke, his, the problem with breaking alabaster is you can't put it back together. Mm-hmm. When she broke that on Jesus... That was the thing that essence sweeted the deal for her to be married. Mm-hmm. She was done at that point. She says, you're all. But I'm in a simple practical way. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul is actually gone and he was sharing Jesus with a bunch of girls that were washing their clothes at a, at a river. And there was a gal that was a seller of purple. We developed that, but purple is a very hard color. You had to crush it from a particular shell of an animal that was very hard to come by. And uh, so in other words, she was, in essence, she like sold Armani suits to the, to the rich. Yes. And she goes, you know, and she had a house. And she's like, you guys need to stay with me. And it wasn't like, hey, baby, you're cute, Paul. Why don't you come and sleep in my pad? It was like she had servants in the whole bit, and Paul had a crew. And she's like, I'm opening my home to you. Now, we would call that hospitality, but it was still giving. She gave her house to them. Mm-hmm. And it becomes the first church in Europe. Mm-hmm. How crazy is that? And it started at a, girl's, at a woman's house. Mm-hmm. How's that, ladies? So... But this is what he says, because the, these last three, by the way, come with, a, with a, a requirement. And with giving, you give with liberality. Now, the word for liberality, by the way, is the word asplates. Splates, 
Ah is a negative. Splates, by the way, means diversified. So asplates means, in a simple sense, we say with liberality, but in a simple sense, it's like give with a single purpose. Mm. Versus Ananias, Savaru may have given with a double purpose. Or you've probably ever had someone kind of, oh, I'm going to give you this, but you kind of know there's something attached to right. it. But if, what if we as Christians were actually like those who have the gift of giving, though we all should give, some will excel spiritually. Hey, if it wasn't for people with the gift of giving, I wouldn't be sitting here sharing with you. Because there are people in America. Do you know that there are three different people in America in this, that I've known of this month who've given $1,000 just to keep me here? Not because they don't want me to but because they know that we're trying to get citizenship. <laughs> but they're all, by the way, they're all men who've given their life to Christ in the fellowship back in the States who are all now serving in ministry. So these are all people who have actually gone through the whole gamut, if you will, who have found Jesus and then found their calling and then found a place to do it. Oh, man. And they're like, we just want to support you in any way we can. Thank the Lord for that. And of course, we were like, man, may God raise up all kinds of people with the gift of giving. But it's like, may God give us wisdom on what to do when they do. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to go to two more here, and that's the end of our list for this. Leading. Proistomy. Proistomy. Pro means ahead or first in the front. Istomy means to stand. Oh, he's staying me. Mm-hmm. For instance, if you were actually going to stand against standing, you would be an anti histamine Does that sound familiar? Um, yeah. yeah. When you take an antihistamine, something is standing against your standing because inside you have standing liquid, if you will, and it's standing against that is the idea. So in other words, stopping the standing, if you will. So proistimi means to stand in front. Now you've got to know that the person who stands in front is the first one to get shot. <laughs> but get the idea, that's the person who in essence is going to lead. Or at least, you know, if they're called to, they should do it properly. And of course, according to this, it says he who leads should lead with diligence. And the word, I like this word, is the word spure. Spure means with eagerness. If you're going to lead, you're like, imagine how many times Moses did not lead with eagerness. He's like, you know, just kill all of them. And then he's like, okay, just kill me. He's like, you know, they're your people, God. And but when God turns it on and he exposes his own heart, he's like, but God, you don't want to do that because then people will make fun of you and say you couldn't get him. You can get him out, but you couldn't get him in. Because like, I know that's where your heart is. Now, can you think of a time where leading took place? Someone stood in the front and led in the books of the, of the Gospels or Acts? Jesus, all the way through? <laughs> all the way through. As a matter of fact, the moment he would say, here's a classic great example of proistomy. When Jesus stands, oh, I'm going to really ruin it here. Oh, that's okay. Why, why stop now? You remember when Jesus is being arrested and he stands before the people and they say, he says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, hey, God, I mean, I am. And they all fall back. Okay, I'm going to warn you here. I didn't get my doctrine from someone's commentary. I actually just looked at the, at the language. It is, when they fall back, it is in the present active indicative. What does that mean? They are falling back. 
they're making happening a, in present. They're making a choice. Oh, I don't know. It's active. Active means you make the choice. Passive means it happens to you. All right. Now, I, I think it's really cool and romantic. That often is developed as Jesus kind of says, I am, and because he says, I am, the glory of that moment throws everyone down to the ground. And it's like, it could be fun, because every time they got up, you could just say, I am, and they just keep falling over, and it's like, this could happen forever. The problem is it's in the active sense. And what that means is that they make the choice to fall back. Now, that's an entirely different thing. Now, in the first case, the, the teaching, the cool teaching on it is, wow, Jesus kind of revealed his glory for a moment, and everyone fell over in that glory. Yeah, that's cool. It's just not necessarily what that text says. Though, let's face it, he could have done that at any time. He dwells in an approachable life. But what it teaches me, according to what it really says, is that Jesus was in... I mean, he just sweat like drops of blood in the garden. Mm-hmm. Is that he was so approachable that they freaked out that they got that close to him and they were completely unthreatened until they realized who he was. They were that close. And in other words, when they fall back, they fall back into military position. They kind of get in their star positions. They're ready. You know, they're hiding behind their shield. As where a moment ago, they approach this guy and this guy's like, clearly he's no, this guy's no threat. So they're like, hey, where, who are you looking for? Well, I don't know Jesus in Nazareth. Have you seen the guy? He's like, I'm him. And then they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And they have to fall back because they're like, you know, imagine if you will, if I was like, there's a guy and he's wanted, you know, by am I whatever, am I, am I crazy? Uh, and, you know, and he, he's, you know, he's armed and dangerous and he's clearly able to rip you apart with his bare hands. And then you walk over and, and, and let's just say his name is Tommy Jones. And you kind of walk over and you were like, we're looking for a guy named Tommy Jones. And he seems really small and not real imposing. He's like, I'm Tommy Jones you would probably fall back rather quick too. But in that moment, then he asks again. And they're in their position. He's like, who are you looking for? And they're like, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, I already said I'm him. Which, by the way, they could have fallen over again if that were the case. If it would just... But he goes, let these go. There's a man standing in front of his people. And he's doing it for the benefit of all of them. Part of it would be the shock that he would say that because everybody else would try to hide and uh, and obfuscate it and and just try to push it aside and uh, try to say something different. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus had often gone to the same spot with his disciples. He set himself up to get arrested. And I'll be honest, having taught in that spot 20-something times, it's probably the most emotional place. Uh, Especially considering one time um, what happened. I mean, my, I had a daughter who was, in essence, killed and raised in Israel on one of these trips. And uh, standing there and realizing Jesus saying to these three guys that were his closest buddies, if you will, or at least I might call them the remedial course. As a teacher, I realize the guys I keep the closest are the ones I trust least. Uh, John, James, and, and, and Peter. And he's like, you guys, I can't afford for you guys to fall asleep on me tonight is you don't realize how hard it is to be arrested under these circumstances. I know what awaits me. I know what the cross looks like. I know what this torture looks like. And I really don't need you making it any harder on me than it's going to be. Please don't fall asleep on me. I need you to watch. I need you to be ready. Because if you aren't, I'm going to actually have to do all of this and have to still protect you guys in the process of this. And lo and behold, they fall asleep and Peter's whacking off of yours. And Jesus is like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This, don't you realize how hard this is already? 
to get arrested by these people, to die for these people who are going to arrest me. Peter, don't make it any harder on me. I realize how heavy that is. But then for Jesus going, well, you just let these guys go. They're no, clearly they're no threat. They're like, well, what about that guy? That guy was a phrase whacking off ears. And it's like, I realize, if you're going to stand in front of people, man, you are going to, you're going to be the first to catch the darts. And I can tell you from experience when you, that you love people enough to do that. Okay. Last one. Are we cool with that? So, okay. Of our seven. Prophecy. Kind of clear. Ministry. Teaching. Exhortation. Giving. Leading. And Eliahu. Showing mercy. The word literally means compassion. With cheerfulness. Remember, each of these has a requirement. Elarates. What does elarates mean? Hilarious. Exactly. Literally, you should show mercy hilariously. We say it with cheerfulness. Now, interesting... If I were to look up this word mercy in its original language and find it throughout Scripture, you know what's interesting is you don't find the word in the book of Acts. But I sure do find it when Jesus gives illustrations. And one illustration specifically where a man owed a tremendous amount of money. He was brought before his master and he said, please give me time and I will pay you in full. Which, by the way, we could all go, there's no way this guy's coming up with this. And the man forgave him in that money. And as he was leaving, he was approached by a man who owed him a considerably less amount of money. People will go, it's actually insignificant. No, it would still be significant. It's just not remotely as significant. And he took him by the throat. And he said, pay me what you owe me. And the guy said the same line that that guy said, please be patient with me and I will pay you in full. And the guy said, no way. He threw him in the jail and when the master of the guy who owed the tremendous amount, heard about that, he called him in front of him. And he said, are you, in Luke's paraphrase, are you kidding me? I forgave you this insurmountable debt and you couldn't turn around and show mercy to that guy? The show mercy is the term here. I know, an interesting thing. So I would imagine part of it must be involving forgiveness. But... Every time that Jesus is approached and someone says, have mercy on me, son of David, the blind men, the Syrophoenician woman who has a daughter who is possessed, it's this word, have mercy. Which leads me to another side of it, a person who's clearly down and out, or maybe I dare say someone in need. There are, and I could guarantee you around this table, people who definitely... And by the way, it doesn't just say the gift of mercy. It says, and in showing mercy. Some people have the gift of showing mercy. My daughter has it. Oh, man. She is ragged in a thousand places, and she's a bag of cats and a lot of others. But when you see somebody who's genuinely in need, she softens. And I love that, by the way. It doesn't matter what they smell like or what they look like. As long as she's safe... In some cases, even when she's not, she's quick to show mercy. Well, here, and in this, I want to throw out a challenge to you. 
something the Lord has led me to. You don't have to do it. You can still be a Christian, but I'm just challenging you because it's something the Lord led me to and I just want to start an epidemic. Big issue. And not every big issue person, of course, is selling because what they genuinely need is money for a house. There are those that are. But what they don't get a lot is attention as a real person. And this is Christmas. And the Lord has led me and it started, I think, last October, a year ago. To just take him out to lunch. To sit down with Andrew. Today was dumb. And go, hey, I know you're selling your big issues, and I know part of that's for money, and I know some, I mean, Michael, he's got eight kids. You know, and he's from Hungary. Uh, and anyways, and to sit down, and it's such a ripe opportunity to give Jesus to people. And let's face it, some places you can find it's like two for one. So I'm like, what am I going to do? Am I going to eat both of those meals? That's bad for both of us. But let's face it, if you got, if you got the funds for just that, you'll be making the difference in some human's life, but you're showing mercy. Mm-hmm. The question is, can you show it hilariously, with cheerfulness? Now, that may not be your way of showing it, but it is a cool one for me, mm-hmm. because I love to be able to listen and to be able to share. But I want to put one... Remember how we want to put balance to these things? I want to put one uh, challenge to you if you're the kind that tends to be very compassionate by nature. The most painful lesson I've ever had to learn was showing mercy with wisdom. Because if you are the kind that whose heart gets broken quickly by someone with a broken heart. You've probably heard it said, hurt people hurt people. And you could put yourself in compromising positions simply because you just with the because you wouldn't imagine someone was trying to do something to you because your intentions are completely pure. Now as a uh, the ladies here, you can <coughs> imagine how that plays out. Because sometimes that would be you know, obviously I'm not going to say, why don't you just go find some guy with a big issue and invite him out to lunch? But there are gals, it's like today when I went looking, everyone that I ran into until I ran into Dom was a girl. And I'm like, well, I'm not inviting you out to lunch. you know. Um, and it's like, oh man, that would be so cool for that. But it's more than that. Because in the culture we live in, let's face it, it isn't like just the opposite gender is going to get the wrong idea. It's like you really want to be careful either way. And it's like, how do I genuinely... God, show me how to minister to the need and not just to what's on the pamphlet in front of me. Does that make sense? Because let's face it, in some cases it's like, and you know, let's face it, these things evolve. It's like, well, okay, if you can't really give me money, because I never give anyone money, because that's just that just seems like a really dumb idea for people that are obviously, that may actually, I'm not confident they're going to spend in a good place, but they're like, well, I'm just going to buy you a jug of milk. The problem is, is then if you watch, how many times they'll take that jug of milk, go and take it back to the place. They'll stand in, usually the people who stand right in front of specific stores have those stores dialed in so that you can buy them something and they can take it back and get the money. But often what happens is they get half the money back, so the store benefits and they benefit. I mean, it's really sad. But when you actually sit and listen for just a moment and go, the real need here. Part of it is they just need to be reminded they're human. Because Jesus died for humans. Okay, 
Sinolikin. We all walk in a room. We all walk in a room and it's a crowd full of people. And as we walk into a room with a crowd full of people, watch what happens. One of the first things is what you see specifically may be something where God's actually activating a spiritual gift. For instance, we could walk in a room, and again, we're, we're, again, without us being first, and there could be someone, and Ian will walk in and he'll overhear a conversation where scripture is being really improperly used or somebody is clearly not walking and towing the line and something inside of him stirs. And that's what catches his ear and eye. Meanwhile, Lois walks in and what she sees is that the rubbish bins are full. And you wouldn't think, wow, clearly Lois is more spiritually endowed at this moment than Ian, but it is a ministry. <clears throat> And in that same way, while that's happening, you know, it's like, I mean, I've got to use Hannah because I just know Hannah like this. Hannah walks in the room and she sees a girl crying in the corner. And she can't think of anything else. Matter of fact, she's like being drawn to that place. It's like a tractor beam. Now, here's the problem. While that's happening, Daniel's walking right beside her. And Daniel's like, I feel like I'm spiritually not at the same plane as Hannah because I didn't notice that girl. Mm. Well, maybe that's because that's actually not the gift God wanted to advocate in Daniel. Mm. So what happens is, Hannah starts talking to this girl. She just got kicked out of her place. She's obviously in a bad way. By the way, God tells us we are actually supposed to play favorites. Do you know that? Do you know who we're to play favorites with? God's people. It's important to note, he says, first you minister mm -hmm. to the believer, then you go to the others. Now, not because he doesn't want the others neglected, but because he doesn't want God's people neglected, and we often neglect them because, well, after all, they're saved, they're okay, right? Well, God wants to use us to minister to those people, especially around Christmas, because you know how rough that gets. The suicide rate rises 17%, and I guarantee you that's not just, a, I mean, that's people who do it on the other side. That doesn't mean Christians don't struggle with that. Or to whatever degree, and sometimes all they really need is someone to come alongside them in exhortation. Hey. So, Hannah is exercising that gift of compassion, but while that's the case, she is just grabbing M, and M is exercising exhortation. She is the one wrapping her arm around. She was like, well, what are we going to do about this? And while that's happening, Daniel goes, huh, that's really funny, because I just heard about this particular... Uh, apartment that just became clear. There's a couple Christian girls and they're there. This girl's Christian. She's in a very bad way. He goes, you know what? For whatever reason, I just got this crazy bonus and I landed this job. I will actually pay your deposit. And what's funny is by the time it's done, this girl got super ministered to because so many people were busy. Now, you throw Ian in the mix at that moment and he's kind of trying to teach her. Now, there may be a time for her to be taught, and that may not be the moment, but the point is, is Ian's going to be, God will often steer this guy somewhere else so that these people could be used in their particular place. Does that make sense? And now the whole body's functioning. Look at what just happened. And it's like, what's really cool in all of that is, she's like, okay, well, how do I get there? And then Ash steps up and he goes, you know what? I'll tell you what, I'm going to walk you to there. I will actually, I'll meet you, and we're going to go, and we're going to go talk to the council. We're going to make sure that we get you into this place. He's leading her. And he's not trying to be mean about it. He's exercising a gift in that. And while all of that's happening, all of these gifts are being manifested and God's body functions right and people get ministered to. But imagine if Ash like, no, 
don't really feel like I don't. I didn't really care about the gal when I first saw her or whatever, or, you know. And I really didn't want to get in a you know a dialogue about some kind of doctrinal issue at a moment like that. And he just like you know I'll do I'll just sit in the corner here and pretend to read my Bible because that way I can kind of blend in or whatever. But it's like what if you're just like all right, God, I'm available, and all of a sudden you're like do 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 do. Whoa, that's it. And Lois is like, well, I don't know. I just saw I saw was the rubbish bin. And you know what the dangerous thing is? Is that the path of being a pastor? If you don't know that's what God wants to do, guess what you'll do when God shows it to you? You'll tell me. Hey, by the way, there's a girl crying in the corner. Oh, wow, how about that? And the rubbish needs to be put out. Oh, and there's this guy. Talking. You need to go over there and, and argue that guy down. And I'm like, wow, that's really funny. There's how, how many of you there are, and I'm going to do all that, and you're going to watch? But if God showed you, he probably showed you because he wants to how exciting is that? Now look at we went so so late today, but hey, I only got one more week with you before Christmas break. And is it a good place to start with? So I always want to pray a prayer for us, and that prayer is, God, will you use every spiritual gift you want to use with me, and let me not diss myself about the gifts I'm not exercising, but let me just rather be more focused on, I don't know, just being available. And again. Let me just say, court vision. When I coach basketball, court vision's everything. That means you want to be able to see all the court. Because if you're just focusing on this one thing, you're going to get hit in the face with the ball, which probably is a good thing, because it will help you get court vision. And might I just say, for all of us, as we go to prayer, the God give us court vision. And again, the idea is, if I'm willing to just look around and go, Lord, just lead me, let me not freak out about this thing He does show me. Or focus on something that I'm not seeing. Because in the end of it all, God's going to do something really cool in all of your lives. And I just want to challenge you, get on it. Alright, you pray with me? Oh Lord, I think we've uh, gone record long today. But Lord, I just want to thank you. Lord, I know that sometimes we can watch certain people demonstrate such what seems to be spectacular gifts in front of us. And it can be really intimidating. We could think the guy that teaches or the person who evangelizes or some guy that plays music, even though that's not a spiritual gift. You know, but something that can kind of intimidate us in some way. But I recognize, Lord, on that, that it just kind of stifles us into a corner and then it keep, makes us less usable. And I can see how the enemy works really hard at that. So on one side, Lord, I pray you get our eyes off of other people in that sense. You get our eyes on you and to look through the lens of you, Jesus, at people to see the thing that you prick our hearts with. So Lord, in the end, help us to not downplay the thing you want to do in our lives because the part we get to play still becomes part of someone's testimony even if it doesn't seem that grand to us. Mm. But it sure does, Lord, to you. Mm. And on that same token, Lord, it could be the other way around where we just kind of get so caught up in thinking we're all that or we get so caught up in our thing we keep score. Like Martha, where she was busy making food while Mary was at your feet. And it seemed like such a great thing until she started keeping score. Mm-hmm. And then she was going to rebuke her sister because she wasn't helping. 
and I know this can happen, I, I saw it happen with Keith Green in regards to reading his album covers, that sometimes we kind of think that our gift is the gift, and then when somebody else isn't doing that, then the whole Christian world's apostate. But Lord, we need every one of these gifts exercised. And we don't necessarily need a guy in a robe eating bugs running around, but Lord, whatever it does to catch our attention, but the message needs to be the same, to call your people back to you and to call a lost world to you. And Lord, without anything in between us, so God, forgive us for where we complicate what you make simple. And again, may I be reminded, may we be reminded, that it's just not about us being the craftsman, but it's about us being the tool, so that in that, you can gift us in whatever way you want for the need before and we can just trust and give us the pleasure in being used. And I just want to thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. You've given us this day and this opportunity to look at these things. Clear them up in our hearts. And Lord, when you want to speak through us, give us the courage to test it and to say, hey, I really believe the Lord's telling me to tell you this. Test it. When it comes time to come alongside someone to comfort and encourage, to challenge them to put into practice what they know in exhortation, give us the courage to do so. When it comes time where you move us in compassion towards someone, give us wisdom, Lord, to not put ourselves in compromising positions unless you demand it, but rather, Lord, Give us insight into the genuine need so we can minister where the need is so that we can see causes cured and not just symptoms alleviated. And Lord, in this Christmas season, make us more available. I pray we would make people more important than stuff. And in that, Lord, that we would be quicker to give. And for those you rise up that are just so naturally given over to just handing it over, Lord, give them wisdom on where to hand it over that it would bring forth tremendous fruit. For those, Lord, you've called to exercise teaching of your scriptures, to actually help communicate eternal principles on a level where uh, that's just on this plane, May it be, Lord, that it's done so properly with seriousness. And Lord, for those who you call to walk before others, may they do so, Lord, with diligence and with joyfulness, with cheerfulness. And those to give, to give hilariously. And those who exercise wisdom, to do so without reservation. But Lord, in the simplest sense of it all, you haven't asked us to figure out what our gifts are. You have asked us to actually surrender ourselves to you, offering our bodies as living sacrifices, letting our minds be transformed by the renewing of our spirit of our mind through your word, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but rather, Lord, to consider others more important than ourselves. And in doing that, Lord, we'll find ourselves doing these things. May we be put in the position where we can be doing these things. Don't let us isolate. And give us the sweet pleasure even today of being used by you. Thank you so much for this time. Jesus, in your name. Amen.